It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Uh, we're here with David McGrath, who is a longtime Kriya Yoga meditator. Um, he studied with Roy Eugene Davis, so again, another uh, brother disciple of mine. Uh, he was also ordained by Mr. Davis to teach Kriya Yoga, and you, you might have been aware of him through the Kriya Yoga podcast. Um, about a week or two ago, there was another episode we released with David, uh, and I think we've done one or two others. Is that right? Maybe. Has it been two, two or three? two in total. Yeah, two in total. So if you uh, miss those, you know, don't hesitate to go back and, and re-listen to them. And so David today is going to speak to us about the philosophy, psychology, and practice of Kriya Yoga um, from over there in Ireland. So David, I'm just going to turn it over to you. And um, again, thank you for being here. And I look forward to hearing what you have to say. So take it away. Well, I'd just like to begin by saying thank you. It's, a, it's quite a privilege, actually, to just be the one to offer the first workshop as part of this Solstice Retreat. Um, and as Ryan mentioned, I'm delivering this from Ireland. Um, and I think most of you, most of you, and probably not all of you, but most of you um, are living in the United States. So this is probably just the start of the day for you. Um, so the objective is kind of in the title. The objective of this workshop is to discuss Kriya Yoga as a three-sided approach. We know in the West that yoga is often seen to be by many as um, a means for physical exercise or a means for mind-body awareness or a type of intervention for well-being. And as you're participating in this solstice retreat, I'm imagining that you appreciate yoga um, in terms of all it has to offer. But it's good to remind ourselves just of just how it's um, been developed as a holistic system where the philosophy provides a framework. And then the psychology helps us to understand the nature of our internal processes and the nature of the mind. And then the practice provides us with a framework to go about um, developing a harmonious relationship with the nature of the body and the mind, and also to understand the nature of reality and our relationship to, with it from gross to subtle to the most subtle levels. And as we continue uh, with that practice, we're able to experience greater um, harmony in our lives and greater fulfillment. So we can begin by just looking at what yoga means. I'm not going to say what Kriya Yoga means. I'll just ask you what yoga means. What's the meaning of yoga? Now, I'm just going to give you a space for a moment just to think of that. If somebody asks you to define what yoga is, 
what would you say? In two or three sentences or one sentence, what would you say? How would you define yoga? Now you're in your own space and you're in silence and in quiet. And just take a moment there and just clarify for yourself how you define yoga. What is yoga? There's no need to offer me any definitions or anything like this. This is for you because it's easy for me to sit here and give my definition, which I will do in a moment. But it's just worthwhile for us to have it clear in our mind what yoga is. What is this um, tradition? What is this uh, system which we're involving ourselves in? Because yoga can be considered to be the final result the overall objective of our practice, but yoga can also be seen as the practice itself, the, the things that we do. So yoga is both the end and it is the means. It's the result and it's the process. Now, the definition of yoga as it's offered within Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, or the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, is that it is the neutralizing of all movements within the field of consciousness. Yoga is experienced when we regulate, manage, control, neutralize all the fluctuations which are occurring within the field of consciousness. Now, that definition uh, has been defined you know, in diff using different words by different people, by different teachers, but essentially the essence of what is being said is summed up as there's a field of consciousness and there's stuff going on within that field of consciousness. And in order to be able to experience oneness consciousness or a sense of unity, a unified consciousness, then we need to be able to neutralize that. Now, these terms can lead to um, a difference of interpretation at a subtle level. You know, we'll read the same books, we'll listen to the same teachers, but how we digest what's being said can be different um, depending on where we're coming from in terms of our own psychology. And so the term yoga itself um, requires reflection, like what is yoga? And so we can talk about it in terms of the sense of unity, because yoga is defined as un the unification, union. The union of what? What are, we, uh, what are we bringing together? What are the things that are separated that we're unifying? That experience of yoga, what is it that is being uh, experienced um, in a unified form? So then we can break it down and we can say consciousness if we wish, or some people might define it in other ways. But if we talk about consciousness, that in itself is quite an abstract term, as in, uh, what is consciousness? So straight away, when we start to discuss yoga, we come face to face with um, terminology and with concepts which challenge us because they're not, it's not terminology or concepts which we're necessarily able to um, define with the clarity that we're able to find an apple or a car or going to the bank or, you know, going, going to work. These are concepts which are, can be interpreted in different ways, but can be spoken about in different ways um, and which can 
which because of that, then we're able to project onto them um, our own layers of understanding, which may or may not be helpful. So the concept of yoga needs reflection. And then we're looking at the field of consciousness, field of consciousness or um, the, the mental field. When we talk about that, what does that mean? What is the field of consciousness? How do we define the field of consciousness? So it's a concept, again, which can be demanding in terms of um, our capacity to conceptualize it, because can we conceptualize it? That's the question. So all of this um, is, um, is demands uh, an exploration. And so this is why we talk of yoga as being a philosophy. The philosophy is a means for us to have a sense of understanding uh, of the terrain, you know? So the philosophy is, acts like a map. Okay, so we, if we have a map in our hands and we're going to explore the environment, there may be things on the map which we've never seen before. There may be things on the map which we have an idea about, but we've never actually witnessed them uh, in person. And so, as we think of the philosophy of yoga as being like a map, we can appreciate that there's parts in that map which are totally new to us. There's parts in that map which we've never navigated before, and that's why we need the map. We need the map to help us to navigate it. Um, and so, when we look at the map and it has this big um, location sign, you are here and we are here, and this yoga would talk about um, you know, when you come to the table, when you come with the pre preparatory work done so as to be able to receive restriction in yoga, then you're, you're, you're told the definition. And the definition is that by neutralizing everything that's going on in the field of consciousness, you can experience oneness consciousness. And you're going, okay, that's fine. So then you give that's the map. But there's a lot of uh, that's broken down for us in a lot of different ways to help us to digest and to um, come to terms with the philosophy. So we think of the philosophy of yoga as being a map, something which we can refer to um, with regularity to ensure that we're moving in the right direction as we meet a new um, uh, obstacle or as we meet a new experience, we're able to refer to the map so as to get clarity on where we are in terms of the practice of yoga. Now, I find this quite interesting because if we look at this philosophy, we're told that the philosophy is ancient, you know, that there's um, written documentation which can be dated back 5,000 years, but perhaps that this philosophy um, is even older. So if we think of that, if you just imagine yourself, you're living as an individual in the Indus Valley 5,000, maybe 6,000 years ago, and you're living in that culture, in that society, in that civilization. And at that time, there are individuals around you who have a tendency um, to communicate things orally. Nowadays, we just go onto Google. If we want to find out something about Kriya Yoga or something about Pranayama, we go into Google, we look it up, we find out. But back then, there was no Google. Um, and so in order to get access to information, you had individuals who were able to share this information orally. Later, it got written down, but if we're going back, let's say 6,000 years, and you're living in that society, it's passed on orally. And so there was people who would share the information in different ways. 
there was people who would focus on the information in different ways. And so we're told that at that time, um, there are six schools of thought, six schools of philosophy, which uh, existed at the time. Now, there was overlap between some of these schools and some of their ideas may or may not have been shared. Yoga was one of these schools. So yoga is one of the schools of thought that existed at the time. Um, and if you went and you received uh, or if you received information or you interacted with somebody who was sharing the information, sharing the teachings of yoga, that could be done um, in different ways, depending on the teacher themselves uh, or maybe the, the circle that they were part of. And then the teachings of yoga themselves, they uh, were relatable to the teachings of another school of philosophy, Samkhya, Samkhya philosophy. And then some teachings of the, from the yoga school of uh, philosophy come from uh, Advaita Vedanta. So although you are looking to receive uh, information and instruction in yoga, you can see that some of the information that's been offered to you is coming from one school of thought, Sankhya, and also from another school of thought, Advaita Vedanta. But there was a lot of different teachers, and they would have put emphasis on different things at different times. Uh, we can see in the Bhagavad Gita that the, there was three core practices which were shared as a means for experiencing yoga, as a means to experiencing um, oneness consciousness. So if you were around at the time, 5,000, 6,000 years ago, and you were asking for instruction or you're looking for advice, you did your Google search, then the teachers at the time may have guided you in terms of one of these three ways to experience oneness consciousness, which were either through karma yoga, through the yoga oneness consciousness, through right action and through um, adherence to dutiful action and living purposefully, or you may have been guided to experience yoga through um, contemplation and self-inquiry and um, study of the self, or you may have been guided to experience oneness consciousness by surrendering, surrendering yourself, by continuous devotion to an aspect of um, absolute reality. So there was different ways that people were guided. And these different ways would have influenced how different teachers taught yoga. We're very fortunate. We're very fortunate because thousands of years later, I think it's around... Um, we could say a thousand years before the current era, that um, sage Patanjali decided to synthesize the whole thing for us. He decided to synthesize the practice of yoga, looking and taking the core teachings, which could be applied so as to um, make it effective and also to ensure that practice was efficient. So, we have the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali offers a very effective means for us to experience yoga. And it's interesting that we can find then in the first book, he defines what yoga is. It's the second sutra. He defines it. He gives a clear explanation in yoga. He's neutralizing what's going on in the field of consciousness. In the second book, in the first sutra, he outlines how to do that practice. What is the practice? What is the kriya? What is the kriya of yoga? What do we do? And so he outlines it and he says, well, you know what you can do? 
You can do a, um, karma yoga, yana yoga, and bhakti yoga. You can do uh, self-discipline, disciplining your actions, disciplining your uh, mental processes, disciplining your whole way of engaging with the world. So we can refer to that as karma yoga. And then you can also do self-study. You can inquire, you can contemplate the nature of yourself. You can inquire into who you are, what you are at a fundamental level and how you um, relate to reality as a whole. So we can consider that jnana yoga. And then he also says, but you know what? Surrender, surrender yourself to Ishvara, surrender yourself to absolute reality. Surrender yourself by being devotional in your practice, by de being devotional in the way you live and express within this world. So we got back to yoga. So Patanjali didn't, he didn't just start something fresh. He took on what had already been offered, but put it together in a way which was very, very easy for people to digest and practical, very practical. So we can consider the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali as our manual, our manual for practice. When we look at what happened, we've moved away from living uh, within the Indus Valley five or 6,000 years ago, then we uh, receive this teaching through the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, we'll say a thousand years ago, in and around the time of Buddha. And then later, many, many, many uh, hundreds of years later, we, after a few, a handful of uh, sages were able to um, travel out of India and share some of the teachings of the East with individuals from the West, we see that Swami Vivekananda was invited over to the United States to offer a talk in the Parliament of World Religions. And in 1893, he did that. And his, his speech and what he offered, what he delivered to the audience there was very much based on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. And he referred to it as Raj Yoga, the Royal Yoga. So the Royal Yoga was a synthesis of Karma Yoga, Jnana Yoga, and Bhakti Yoga. Who was looking at all three. And Paramahansa Yogananda uh, referred to our cultivating a practice of each of these three types of yoga um, as a means to being able to progress with greater speed. And Paramahansa Yogananda himself, in 1920, he went to speak at the Parliament of World Religions in Boston. Um, unlike Vivekananda, who ended up returning to India, Paramahansa Yogananda, as you well know, stayed in the United States and developed a following and set up his headquarters there. But his instruction from Swami Sri Yukteswar was to base the teachings as he shared them on the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, on the Kriya Yoga of Patanjali. And what's the Kriya Yoga of Patanjali? The Kriya Yoga of Patanjali is what was mentioned in the first verse of book two. It's the practice of self-discipline, self-study and surrender to God. And of course, within the tradition of Kriya Yoga, within this system that we are part of, there are supplementary te techniques and practices which we incorporate within our meditation practice. But the philosophy, the psychology and the practice is very much based on the teachings of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. So we see the Yoga Sutra as providing a structured approach to our practice. And as we discussed, it's a means to an end. The practice in itself is not the, the focus. It, the practice in itself is a means for us to experience yoga. And so Patanjali 
breaks this down into four books. And so the first book is, well, what is it? What is yoga? And for him, um, he quite often uh, uses the word yoga synonymously with the word samadhi, which is interesting because for us, if we translate it, samadhi, samadhi means absorption. So Patanjali is saying that absorption is the neutralizing of movements in the field of consciousness. Okay, so how can we experience this absorption? And so what Patanjali does is in the second book, he offers uh, practice, like how do we go about doing it? So in the first book, we have what is it? And the second book is how do we practice it? In the third book, we, he talks about the benefits of it, how we can um, go deeper in our practice, but also how we can experience the benefits of our yoga practice. And then in the fourth book, he talks about the ultimate goal, the final result, kavalya, the liberation of our consciousness. And this, this yoga, the yoga where we experience liberation of consciousness, this is the final goal that Patanjali is aiming or guiding and directing us towards. This is the experience that we want to um, move into and to have for ourselves. And so when we look at the uh, Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, he has given us a very, very easy to follow approach, which we can refer to as we continue with our practice. And we can refer to it continuously because it provides us with um, the framework and in it, includes some of the philosophy. Now, we may, we may seek out deeper um, insights into the philosophy as we progress in our practice, but this is a very solid um, base of um, philosophical insight and explanation to help us to ensure that we are on the map and we're moving in the right direction. So Patanjali, in the second and third book, outlines the Eightfold Path of the system of Raja Yoga, Ashtanga, now, um, you're obviously familiar with this. So before I rattle off each of the eight limbs, I'm just going to give you a space here for a second. Now you don't need to write a comment or anything like that. But just to think, what are the eight limbs of yoga? Do you know the eight limbs of yoga? Um, just to reflect on what they are. What are the eight limbs of yoga? Now, you don't need to know them in Sanskrit. I'm just giving you the opportunity to reflect on how you define the eight limbs of yoga. Okay, so you'll begin with the two, the 10 moral precepts, if you want to consider them that. Some will just call them principles, other will call them a framework for living. So we've got the yamas and niyamas, and then we've got the practice of dealing with the physical body, asanas. And then we've got the practice dealing with the energetic body, pranayama. And then we've got the practice of where the attention is internalized, pratyahara. And then we'll have our development of concentration, meditation, ultimately experiencing absorption. And this is the one I'm going to focus on here for a second, the eighth limb, the limb which outlines samadhi. Because this, this is what most people, when, when we read the Yoga Sutras, this is the eighth limb. We, we, we consider this to be where we want to go. And I think it's important to recognize how um, Sage Patanjali it breaks samadhi down for us. First of all, as we've mentioned, he 
correlates samadhi to yoga. So yoga is the experience of unifying our consciousness, our ordinary consciousness, our consciousness, which is identifying with the physical world, the emotional world, and the mental world. We're endeavoring to purify that consciousness by disengaging with everything that's going on so that we're no longer identifying our sense of existence based on everything that's going on at a physical, emotional, and mental level. And then by doing that, by disengaging and disidentifying in this way, we're able to experience consciousness, which is pure. And then by having this experience of pure consciousness, eventually we can uh, dilute and wash away all the impediments or obstacles at a very subtle level, which prevent us from being able to just simply abide in that state of pure consciousness as our way of being. And so that is the final goal. That's what yoga is about. But samadhi within the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali is broken down for us. And it's broken down for us in a way which helps us in our practice, because that end goal is quite... Um, ambitious, you know, it's quite, uh, we're trying to conceive, first of all, what does it mean for us to um, disengage with our ordinary sense of consciousness so that we can experience a unified consciousness, which is pure? What does that mean? So it's quite a big ask of us to be able to um, go about practicing so as to experience in that. Um, and so what Patanjali does is he offers us a kind of a build up towards it. And the build-up towards it, he refers to as samadhi as well, or sometimes samapati. He refers to it in both ways, but this, he breaks the samadhi down. And in this way, it helps us when we're, when we're involving ourselves in the practice of yoga, specifically our formal meditation practice, we're able to go about it in a way where we are uh, becoming absorbed at a gross level, then at a subtle level, and then at a more subtle level, until we're moving into deeper states of um, purity. And so these are the different states of samadhi that we experience as we continue with the process. So fundamental to experiencing this state of samadhi is the capacity for us to be able to concentrate. And so the practice of yoga, as we look at it in the eight limbs, what yoga really is all about is, and this is from my perspective, and so I'm, I'm, I'm sharing it but I'm in a, as a means for you to be able to reflect on how you deem yoga to be. But uh, yoga as a practice is very much about giving ourselves the opportunity to disengage with, with the different layers of manifested reality, meaning that we're able to disengage with manifested reality, beginning with the gross physical and moving inwards to more subtle um, levels of experience and more subtle levels of experience and more subtle levels of experience. Fundamental to our doing that is the capacity to concentrate. Now, when we think of concentration within the physical domain, within the physical uh, level of uh, created manifestation, you know, we've been told to concentrate 
for many, many years. We, we've been told to concentrate when we're in school, you know, when you're at work and you talk about, well, I can't concentrate. If you're having a conversation with somebody, you say, sorry, I didn't hear you. I wasn't concentrating. We have an understanding of what concentration is. When we sit down to watch TV, we, that's in itself a type of concentration. But the thing is, yoga is saying that's fine. But the problem is that kind of concentration is something that we are um, kind of used to doing in a wishy-washy kind of way. And, and, and so we want to be able to, first of all, cultivate the capacity to concentrate at a gross level, which is sharp, which is focused, which is one-pointed, where we won't become distracted with ease. And so the best way to go about doing that is we can perform asanas, postures, and then we can do breathing exercises. And with the breathing exercises, we start to, um, well, there's a looped effect because just by the practice of the breathing processes, we are engaging with a practice which demands our concentration, but also through the practice of the breathing processes, we're facilitating greater concentration. So there's kind of a looped effect. Um, And then we have pratyahara, um, where we move our attention inward and then we pay attention to the breathing process. And so the whole practice of yoga is a means for us to develop concentration at a gross level. When we become successful at that, when we're, when we're able to absorb our attention in, we're able to experience absorbed concentration at a gross level, then we can experience it at a more subtle level and then at an even more subtle level. And so it's a continuous process. And so when we return back to the definition of yoga as being the neutralizing of all movements within the field of consciousness, well, we're doing this on an incubated, within an incubated space. We're doing this as a formal practice. And all of this is to help us to move towards the experience offered in the fourth book of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, which is Kavalya, where the experience isn't something that we just have within our formal meditation practice, but it's something which we're able to, um, it's a state we're able to abide in uh, continuously. So we are guided through the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali um, with the use of certain terminology. And this terminology sometimes can challenge us because it's not there it comes from sanskrit so even the word samadhi um which we translate to mean absorption um different teachers will first of all they might explain it slightly differently but the way patanjali has broken samadhi down into uh savikalpa nirvikalpa and then within the savikalpa he's broken it down into four different levels all of this is the way that sage Patanjali deemed fit to to offer a framework which would be helpful to the practitioner. Sage Patanjali saw this as a framework which, through his own experience, and if you've meditated, you'll be able to relate to it, it works to help us to guide us within the process of meditation. Other teachers from other traditions or other schools of thought may describe samadhi and the different layers of samadhi or different levels of samadhi in different ways. And so we can start being faced with some kind of confusion um, just by uh, reading different texts. But Patanjali is very fixed in in how he uh, explains it. And within the Kriya Yoga tradition, as it's based um, on the Kriya Yoga of Patanjali, then it makes sense for us to adhere to this framework, framework.
But there are other concepts which are offered, such as the concept of Purusha or Prakriti, you know, uh, this terminology, um, when they talk of Ishvara. Um, so these are Sanskrit terms, which sometimes um, we can be, we can read depending on uh, which version of the Yoga Sutra we're, we're um, studying. But what's helpful then as a means to understanding these terms is to look at the supporting schools of thought that yoga um, borrows or shares some of its uh, philosophy with. So that's Samkhya and Aveta Vedanta. So just give me a moment. Now, so I'd like to talk about those two schools for a moment, just as a, a way for us to understand the system of yoga that we're adhering to and the system of Kriya Yoga that we are practicing um, with greater clarity. I'm not sure if you ever came across or heard of a, a book called Flatlands. It's a book from the 19th century. And the author used it as a means uh, for, to criticize Victorian society. But it's a book which has become very relevant in terms of discussing uh, dimensions of reality. So within the book, um, the author talks about this world and the world is flatland where every body existing within the world is flat two-dimensional so that means that they're just moving uh, either left or right or in the up or down but there's no third dimension so they're just moving sideways basically and so they're all going about their work and they're all engaging with each other and then one day when one of these individuals is asleep in bed this other individual from the third dimension decides to try and communicate with the individual who's in bed from flatlands. And so he talks down to him. And the individual in the bed, of course, cannot look up, can't see beyond what's flat, and so starts to freak out a bit. And the voice tries to calm him down. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Um, but the little guy is a little bit petrified, but after a while he, he starts to trust uh, the voice because it's soothing and compassionate. And then the guy says, well, listen, would you like the opportunity to see beyond what you're used to seeing, to see in reality at a bigger level? And the little guy's not really sure, but then decides to go with it. So the guy from the third dimension puts his hand down, picks up this little guy from the flatland, from the two-dimensional realm, picks him up and puts him upright. And of course, this individual, the little guy from the flatlands, sees everything and is blown away. It's amazing. Now, the reason I'm telling this story is basically because we could talk. That little guy from the flatland, when he goes back to his bed and he goes and says to his friends, I experienced this third dimension. It's amazing. It's phenomenal. It's beyond what we can conceptualize. And he'll do his best. He might might try to draw pictures or whatever, but the picture was, uh, will have no perspective, so there's no means for him to do it. It's similar. We are faced with this problem within yoga philosophy. The philosophy is doing its best to communicate an experience which is, cannot be conceptualized. It can't be conceptualized. And at the beginning, uh, I guided you through a little reflection where we talked about this is reality, and this is reality. But we are very much identified with the nature side of reality, with the movements, uh, with the forces of nature, the, and the different 
expressions within the natural realm, we identify with them so much that it's difficult for us to understand pure consciousness because in order to do so, we need to let go of all of those identifications with the natural expressions. And so the philosophy of yoga is doing its best. And it goes to Samkhya and it asks for uh, a, a means to explain it. So you may have read this in different uh, books, but Samkhya talks about the different evolutes of cosmic manifestation. And it begins at the beginning. Samkhya doesn't have a supreme godhead. It begins with Purusha, which is pure, pure consciousness, and Prakriti, which is um, nature at its fundamental level. Nature uh, where the three gunas, the three forces of nature, um, um, sattva, rajas, and tamas, where those three are in balance, they're neutralized, they're steady, that's prakriti. And then pure consciousness is purusha. And then there's a vibration, and the vibration occurs. But innate within the vibration is an intelligence, the intelligence which one can uh, imagine to be a consequence of the fact that pure consciousness is interacting with the forces of nature. Now, I'm going to explain this to you in a way which is very linear and it's very um, black and white, but it, it, you'll understand that it's not going to really portray the reality of it because um, I don't have that capacity. It's, it's more a means to talk about the philosophy. So Samkhya has the pure consciousness interacting with the forces of nature. There's a vibration. The vibration causes the, the aspects, the forces of nature to start to spin up and to vibrate. And then within that vibration, there's an innate intelligence. That intelligence and the fact that there's a vibration now, you can imagine this is a vibration. If you see a vibration, it's usually got an up and a down and an up and a down. And the way I like to um, explain this as a help to understand the philosophy is that if you've got an up and a down and an up and a down, it means that there's a relationship. There's a relationship from the peak and the up and the peak and the down. There's a relationship. There's a sense of difference. And so that sense of difference be brings about the sense of individual existence. So this is one vibration, but the sense of uh, that because of the uh, vibrational curves, there's a sense of relationship which creates a sense of individual existence. So one um, curve is relating to another curve, and so on and so on and so on. And this is continuous, and it keeps on going. And so there is an accumulation of interactions between each part of the wave, the up and down, and there's many, many ups and downs along the whole current. Now, as I mentioned, this is a linear explanation just as a way for us to understand. So you have this interaction. It creates a sense of individual existence, even though everything is part of the one vibration. It creates a sense of individual existence through an accumulation of interactions between each of these curves within this vibration. There comes a need to recall all of these interactions. So we have the... the uh, the first um, expression of mind, where mind is a recollection of all these interactions. And then as these interactions accumulate and continue and continue and continue, well, then there's a capacity for um, 
for interaction at more um, gross levels, which will be more engaging, more complex, more diverse. It keeps on expanding. So mind creates um, the sense faculties, a means for us to be able to interpret um, or to perceive that relationship. So we have the sense faculties, uh, taste, smell, touch, sight, and hearing. Um, and then we also have the, capaci the, the um, capacity to move and to hold and to speak and all of these. So we're endowed with uh, within, as an expression of mind, um, the form of more physical expression is endowed with faculties so as to perceive reality at a more gross level. But then obviously there needs to be something to perceive. So we, there's the five core elements, earth, fire, water, air, and ether. And so you, with these five, then there's uh, through the process of evolution, they start to form different objects. And, and, uh, and so those objects are perceived by the sense faculties and the sense faculties evolve, the objects evolve, sense faculties evolve, objects evolve, and it continues outwards. Now, this is a very linear explanation, but it's just a, a means to help us to understand that what we're trying to do is we're trying to work back from that gross level gross level where we're engaging with the sense faculties and the objects of the senses, we're trying to, first of all, uh, be able to withdraw our engagement with that and then move inwards. So there's, there's, there's an inward capacity to sense, which is the mind. The mind is an, our organ for um, receiving data, processing data. It's a means for us to be able to engage with reality at this level. And so we're endeavoring to move past that move past the mind, and then we're left with um, the sense of individual existence. And then from the sense of individual existence, we're trying to move beyond that to experience um, a state of pure consciousness. Now, this that's all Samkhya philosophy, but we can move to Aveta Vedanta, which puts a huge onus and a huge emphasis on this sense of individual existence, because the teaching is that this sense of individual existence is the core seed. It's the root of all other delusions, because from this sense of individual existence, from when this vibration was neutralized, when the, when the vibration was in a state of balance, it was when the vibration started to move, that's when the state of individual existence started to occur. So for us, the seed of our delusion or our ignorance is the fact that we identify with being an I, a being an individual. And so by Advaita Vedanta encourages the inquiry into, well, what is the I? What is it that is creating this I? What's the source of it? And by moving beyond it, by dissolving that self of individual existence, we're able to experience a unified existence, a yoga. So we can see how yoga philosophy comes from Samkhya philosophy and Advaita Vedanta philosophy. And so there's, um, these are the two schools which have influenced. And so in the Yoga Sutras, there's terminology which refer to both. And when it talks about Ishvara, Samkhya philosophy doesn't talk about Ishvara. Samkhya philosophy doesn't care about Ishvara. Samkhya philosophy doesn't care about an absolute reality which is beyond the seer and beyond uh, the interaction of the seer with manifested reality. But Advaita Vedanta does. It considers there to be um, a unified whole, 
which is the continuum from which everything comes from. And so we can use this then, uh, this understanding, this philosophical understanding, that when we're sitting to meditate, we're endeavoring in our, in our incubated space, we're endeavoring to get in the space which is, first of all, allowing us to disengage with the gross physical as much as possible so that we're not engaging with the sense organs and we're not engaging with sense objects. Perfect. And then within that incubated space, as soon as we've achieved that, we can go about uh, looking at the mind. And we'll have to do this at a gross level because the mind can be very active at a gross level. So we'll use a meditation technique at a gross level. And by using a meditation technique at a gross level, we're able to cultivate a state of concentration, which is very absorbed on that gross object of concentration. As we experience success with this, then we can move to a more subtle object and then to a more subtle object until we are in a space where we are able to concentrate on the subtlest object. And the subtlest object, well, there's two. And it depends, uh, within Kriya Yoga tradition, we use both. The two objects of focus that you can use at a subtle level are Omkara, focusing on the Om vibration. And you'll understand that from the philosophy, this is at the core. It's said that by focusing on Om and absorbing your attention in Om, we're able to move right back to the very cause. So Omkara, contemplation of Om, is a very subtle um, object of focus. The other very subtle object of focus is the sense of I. And this is what's um, encouraged by Aveta Vedanta. So this is the other subtle object of focus. We are contemplating I. Now for both of these, both of these, when we compare, you know, when we talk about a gross object of focus at the beginning of our practice, which might be that we are mentally saying a mantra or we're um, mentally uh, chanting through the chakras, these things, uh, they're, they're involving our mind at a very gross level. And then as we move with our practice, we're able to experience, rather than just chanting through the chakras, we're able to feel a, a movement of current at a subtle level. So we're not focusing on the breathing at a very uh, gross level, but we're more focused on the current of prana, the prana, the current of vital airs within the body uh, at a very subtle level. And we're able to move to more subtle levels as our concentration becomes more and more um, focused at the subtle levels. We have to work with our capacity to concentrate. We're luring ourselves into this space where our concentration is very refined and very subtle. And ultimately, we are left in the space where we can either contemplate Om or contemplate the source of I. Now, for both of these, we aren't involved in a thinking process. There are movements within the, men, in the field of consciousness which are occurring, which will help us with our staying concentrated. So there's still a little bit of effort required. There's still a, a degree of um, effort required in order for us to stay alert and attentive on what we're doing but it's not a thinking process. Um, it's, uh, and we're, our mind is very, very subtle and refined and our attention is very pure. And so these two 
are our means to be able to make that transition then from being uh, identified with anything which is an expression of the natural world, Prakriti, and move beyond it to experience pure consciousness, the seer, where we are then just able to experience a state of pure consciousness. Now, when we look at the breathing process, because breathing process and practices around pranayama um, are quite important within the Kriya Yoga tradition. So when we looked at the second verse, oh, sorry, the first verse of the second book of the Yoga Sutra Patanjali, where he outlines what Kriya Yoga is, and he outlines it as being self-discipline, self-study, and surrender to absolute reality. These, anybody who's practicing these three can be considered to be practicing Kriya Yoga. What's different about our branch, the tradition that we're part of, is the fact that there are breathing exercises, specifically the Kriya Yoga Pranayama breathing exercise, which has been passed down to us through Lahiri Mahasa, Sri Yogteshwar, Paramahansa Yogananda, Roy Eugene Davis, and perhaps through um, Ryan. And so this, this breathing exercise is a means for us to purify our physical, our, if you want to call it energetic or emotional body, and then to purify our mental body. It's a means for us to do that. And the, there's usually preliminary breathing exercises that we can do, and you may be familiar with some of them, um, the bellows breath or alternate nostril breathing. And these different techniques help uh, us to, as I mentioned before, just to become more concentrated, just because by doing these techniques, we have to focus our attention. But really what it comes down to in terms of pranayama practice, and it's all about the, the, the prana, is that within the physical body, we are comprised of the 10 values, 10 vital winds, so these 10 vital winds um, are the force which keep us alive and keep us expressing. Now, there's five major winds, and one of these is that for respiration. And so this vital wind, which is associated with respiration, is actually called prana as well. And so of the 10 vital pranas, the one which for respiration is called prana. And in this prana, we use it as a means to become aware of our internal body or our subtle body, our energetic body. So when we're breathing and we're doing the breathing practices, first of all, we need to become aware of our breathing. That's the first thing, just to actually take time out and know what it's like to breathe and be aware of it. But by appreciating that, our breathing process is actually a reminder. It's a reminder of the fact that our physical body is only alive and kicking because of the fact that there are vital winds which are keeping it alive. And those vital winds are being determined by the forces of nature at a very subtle level. So in order for us to be able to become aware of our subtle bodies, our, our energetic bodies, we use pranayama. And so we, 
if you notice your breathing process and then through the process of regulating it, you will know that it has an effect on your physiology. You know, whether you're using your diaphragm or not, depending how much you're filling your lungs or not. Through alternate nostril breathing, you'll notice the shift of air current between the left and right nostril and the harmonizing of these airflow. And then all of this will have an impact on our sense of um, peace and our sense of relaxation, which will also facilitate then our capacity to concentrate. When it comes to the Kriya Pranayama breathing exercise, we begin and it's, it's a vigorous style of breathing. It's a vigorous style of breathing, which allows us to draw current up through the spinal passageway, ensuring that oxygen is being delivered to every cell in the body, but in, including the cells within the spinal passageway. And this is very rejuvenating because delivering oxygen to all the cells of the body is one of the core things which sustains uh, vitality within the mind-body system. And so our Kriya Pranayama will do that as a physical level. But as we continue with the practice and as we concentrate on the flow of the current, you know, at initially when we start out, it'll be just the breathing, the, the physical aspect of breathing. But then the physical aspect of breathing as we move, as our concentration becomes more refined and we become um, more... Uh, alert and attentive to more subtle levels of being, will experience a movement of current. Now, this is nothing magical. It's not a case of experiencing uh, something extraordinary. It's just that the breathing process becomes very, very subtle. And so even though you're vigorously drawing breath into the body, it's not seen or felt to be an air current. It's, it's more seen as a current, which is just taking place. It's hard to explain. It's more refined, essentially. And you'll know from the autobiography of a yogi that Paramahansa Yogananda describes a situation where um, Swami Sri Yukteswar is in a state of samadhi or absorption and he's lying in his bed and Paramahansa Yogananda thinks he's dead because he's just very, very still. And then he goes to check out his nose to see if there's breathing, if there's anything going on, starts playing with his nose and Sri Yukteswar um, wakes out of, you know, kind of moves out of his samadhi trans and he asks him what's going on. And the whole reason for that is because the breathing is so subtle. So it's not like the breathing stops. And in some cases it may stop or may become so, so refined that it appears to have stopped, but that it's the breathing moves from a state of gross physical um, activity, as in we're aware of it on a gross physical level. And as our attention becomes more refined and moves deeper and deeper within, the breathing process becomes more refined and our awareness of it uh, allows um, us, sorry, the breathing process becomes more and more refined. And as a consequence, our concentration and our awareness becomes more and more refined. The two work together. And so you're familiar with the whole concept of the breath being the bridge between the body and the mind. Um, uh, and this is it. This is what's going on. So we see in Samkhya philosophy, they talk about moving through the evolutes from the gross to the subtle to the more subtle back to pure consciousness. And then in Advaita Vedanta, you do that by focusing on the, the subtlest aspect of our being, the I nature or if you want, the Aum vibration. And then by allowing that to subside, by transcending that, we move into a space which is a space of pure conscious being. 
Um, but to do that, we can use the breath as, a, as, our, as our tool. And there's other supplementary techniques you can use too, and you'll have learned them through the Kriya Yoga um, lessons that you've received. Um, and they all work. But we just need to bear in mind that what we're trying to do in our yoga practice is to disengage, disidentify, and disassociate with external manifestation. So when we sit down and we sit in this incubated space, there might be the capacity just to reside in pure conscious being like that straight away. We might be able to just move into it very easily. So when we sit to meditate, it's a case of us questioning, well, where are we at right now? Where is my mind right now? Where is my level of concentration? Where, what am I absorbed in? Or is my, is my concentration fragmented? Is it very fragmented? To what degree is it fragmented? So is my mind dull or is it very dull or is it slightly active or is it very active like I'm being distracted or is it one-pointed and how one-pointed is it? So we, it's good for us to have an awareness of our own um, state of concentration because ultimately what we're trying to do is to refine our concentration so that we're able to just be. We're able to be and we're able to abide in a state of being without effort, where our concentration flows without effort. And we're able to just enjoy uh, existence where we are just abiding in that state of existence and not needing to start telling stories or identifying with any aspect of reality, gross, subtle, or so, a more subtle, physical, emotional, or mental. We're just being. And so that's what we want to do. So we, we might be able to do that from the get-go. We might be able to do that immediately. It might last for a minute or two, and then it stops. But we might be able to just shift our awareness back in again and go again. Who knows? Uh, but it, this is the practice of meditation. This is the part where we're pretty much um, left to our own devices. It's up to us to ap apl apply ourselves to discerning the nature of what's going on in our mind, the nature of our um, state of concentration. And by having a, a clear understanding of, okay, well, right now my concentration is kind of doing this. I think it's a good idea if I employ this technique and this technique to help me move it to this state. So we, for that, we can refer back to what Patanjali talked about, the different states of sam, samapati, the different states of samadhi, which are gross, subtle, more subtle, and then moving into contemplation of sasmita, of the eye nature. So we remember this, we remember this, that we might be able to abide in a state of clear, clarified, pure conscious being from the get-go. If not, we need to evaluate where we are and then use techniques to move us through. The pranayama, which is offered as part of the Kriya Yoga tradition, is beneficial to us because even though um, we may not need it in terms of developing our concentration. It's helpful for uh, revitalizing the body-mind system and encouraging um, the, the rejuvenation of it. And in this sense, we're helping our own evolution. And Paramahansa Yogananda talked about this. I believe he said that to Roy mentioned that even if you don't need to use the pranayama at the beginning of your, ex of your practice, it's helpful to use it at the end of your practice. So, we look at this, we've got now an understanding of the philosophy. We've associated it with, with practice a little bit. But 
all of this encompasses the psychology because we're working as we move beyond the uh, physical body we start to work with the mind and i know that a lot of uh, the literature will talk about mm, they'll talk about mind stuff okay so the vritti can be described in different ways vritti can be described as mind stuff fluctuations so what i'd like to do is just to break it down a little bit at how to give us an understanding of what we're actually doing and again the different schools of thought can describe this differently so chitta that word chitta the field of consciousness or consciousness or the mental field in samkhya they describe it in one way and in vedanta they describe it in another way so you may have heard of chitta or the field of consciousness being described as the storehouse or of all experiences it's the place where all our samskaras our latent impressions our karmas our conditionings all of this is kept within the field of consciousness now within advaita vedanta this field of consciousness is confined to our individual that is that within our own minds we have our own um chitta we have our own field of consciousness so that's the advaita vedanta um explanation within samkhya they'll say that this field of consciousness is unbounded so that that storehouse of latent expression impressions latent um conditionings is without boundary it's universal and so there's a difference in understanding however through reflection we're able to see that okay well if i have my own individual field of consciousness and i'm experiencing it within my own being and this is the storehouse of of the samskaras and the karmas the latent impressions and conditionings which are within my own field of consciousness if i'm moving beyond the physical body okay where is this individual consciousness or this individual field of consciousness if i move beyond the emotional body now where is this field of consciousness and then if i move beyond the the faculty of mind like if i start to move into deeper depths of mind then where is this field of consciousness like where is its boundaries and so we can compare it to the subconscious mind as in that when when we move to the subtler levels of mind the boundaries which are containing this field of consciousness they don't make have any relevance anymore because we're losing the sense of individuality so the field of consciousness doesn't have that boundary partition anymore so now we can understand why samkhya talks about the field of consciousness as being universal because samkhya doesn't see any boundary or partitioning or individualization of this chitta so that's just to explain for the sake of understanding um different literature that you might come across but essentially fundamentally the field of consciousness is universal like there's one cosmic mind and so usually within this kriya yoga tradition that's the way we'll talk about the chitta the field of consciousness as one cosmic mind the it, it's the cosmic mind that we're trying to stop the we're trying to not stop we're trying to neutralize the movements within this field of consciousness but in terms of our being able to do it we don't need to concern ourselves with the and the cosmic mind we just need to first of all just concern ourselves with okay uh, uh in terms of my own individual experience how am i doing 
of course, as you move into the subtle, most subtle levels, then it's something that you you can um, be more concerned with. But right now, in terms of your personal practice, in terms of your own individual experience, your field of consciousness, what's going on? So what we'll do is we'll look at the mind in terms of the four faculties of minds that are defined. So we saw that within Samkhya, they, they talk about the capacity to perceive reality through the sense faculties. They'll talk about the objects of the senses and the two of them engaging and interacting. Preceding that is mind. So when we're sitting to meditate and we move inward and we're, okay, I'm disengaged with the external world. I can't see anything that's going on. This room is super quiet. I can't hear anything. That's great. There's no smell. There's no taste. That's fantastic. I'm very comfortable in this chair. There's nothing which is interrupting me uh, in terms of sensation. Everything's fine. Great. Then we internalize our attention and then we're moving it towards the mind. So now what's going on in the mind? What are we actually trying to do? So the way the mind is this defined and described is that it's made up of four components. So we looked at the chitta. Okay. The chitta is the storehouse of latent impressions, conditionings. But you have what's called manas. Manas is referred to as the sense mind. So as we're engaging in our ordinary day-to-day lives, um, or even when we have our eyes closed, in fact, um, anything which is being received to this mind-body system, any kind of data which is being offered to the mind-body system and then is being assimilated or digested or taken in, that's occurring through the sense mind. So that's manas. So when we sit to meditate, we close our eyes and we sit in a quiet room so as to ensure that manas, that aspect of mind, the sense mind, can be disciplined, basically, so that we can quieten it down. That's fantastic, because then in that way, we won't be receiving, we won't be interrupted in our concentration. Our concentration can become more focused more easily. But what happens then, we sit with our eyes closed, our manas (laughs) is being disciplined. We may find issue with our physical body. We may start finding um, discomfort. We may start uh, the subtlest sound, the sound of a uh, ticking clock or a very subtle sound of maybe a bee on the window or a fly on the window. Subtle sounds may start to irritate us. And this is all the sense mind. So the sense mind is manas. And that's the faculty of mind which is responsible for passing data from whatever aspect of external reality into our internal reality. And chitta. Chitta is the accumulation, as we mentioned, is the accumulation of all stored experiences. So these are all the latent impressions. These are all the conditionings. These are our, our beliefs and our opinions and our ideas and our memories and our, the, the feelings associated with all of those. And they're all in there. And some of them are you know, up near the front and up near the top, and some of them are deeper down, and some of them are very, very deep down. So when we sit, and if we manage to you know, discipline our sense mind and everything's pretty all right, the, we'll start to notice the chitta more. And so the chitta you know, initially it might just throw us up a random memory, a memory from our childhood, or it might throw us up um, uh, some the last scene of a movie that we watched about three months ago. It could show us up anything. 
um, what it throws up may be favorable or unfavorable. But our whole objective, of course, is not to become engaged in it. Our objective is to simply allow it to rise up and let it go, uh, allow it to rise up and let it go. There's a lot of information in there. So it's natural that this is going to rise up, especially now, especially now that we've uh, quietened down the sense mind. The chit is like, yeah, I've got full stage. Here we go. Boom, boom, boom. And so it'll start doing this. And it's natural that it's going to do this. It does it all the time. Right now, you're receiving information and you're listening to me. This information is data. Your sense faculties, your ears are perceiving it. If you're watching me, then your eyes are perceiving it. And there may be an emotional response to it. So you're having this emotional response to it within your body. That could be triggering the thoughts or the different impressions which are in your chitta, in your field of consciousness, in your deep mind. So this sense data is going to trigger something within your sense mind. So even if I say the word banana, I say the word banana, you hear it, it might give you, uh, if you really break it down, you hear the word banana, then you've got, you have to think of a banana. Okay, so now you have a specific banana in your mind. Is, is it a yellow one or a green one or a black, black, black one? You've got all this process taking place. Then you've got the feeling whether you like banana or you don't like banana. Maybe you, then the chit that shows up a memory. Oh, remember that time that you had a banana and it was, uh, it, it tasted awful or a different thing. Or, oh, I really liked bananas when I was a child. I wonder, I don't like bananas now. And all of this will come up as a response to the sense data. But when we're sitting to meditate and we close off the sense mind, the manas, we close it off, then the chitta is just going off its own accord. And then initially it might be gross thoughts, but if we're sitting there and we go through this practice and we do it repetitively, if we meditate daily and we meditate for longer and progressively longer, then we're going to allow this stuff to rise up. Our objective is to ensure that it just expresses without our identifying it. Once we identify with it, we give it power. And though, even though it goes back down again, it's now charged up again. It's got more of a vibration. If we just allow it to go, then that's it. It's expressed itself. And the thing about the chitta is the thoughts within there are interrelated. They're connected with sensations and feelings within the body. So when you have a biochemical response of embarrassment within your body, you might have a biochemical response. Something happened, you had a biochemical response in your body, which caused you to feel a little bit of fear, embarrassment. But that is going to be associated with multiple thoughts within the field of uh, consciousness. And then these can be triggered. Within our meditation practice, we're doing our utmost. We're doing our very best to create an environment where we're not going to be triggered by externals, where we're sitting internalized, and whatever is coming up, we're just allowing it to express. Boom. The issue is the ahamkara. Now, the ahamkara is the sense of individual existence. So this is the third faculty of mind. We had chitta, we had manas, and now we have ahamkara, the sense of individual existence, ego, uh, or the sense of ego. And this is the when things get complicated, because the ego wants to define its sense of individual existence based on something. It cannot, existence isn't recognized to be the natural reality. Existence needs to be defined in accordance with something. So I need this, the ego says, I need this 
to say that this is me. I need this to say that I am. I need this to say that I exist. Now, that's not true because you exist anyway, but this is the faculty of mind which does that. It gives that sense of self-importance, sense of individual existence. So now that we shut everything off from the external world, you know, there's nothing for us to, you know, when you're looking around your room, you might be able to see some things which you can say, oh yeah, that's mine. This gives me that memory. This is mine. Somebody gave me this, me, 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 I, 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 and that's fine. But in our meditation practice, we are not engaging with any of that stuff. So now the only thing that's possible for the eye to engage with is the stuff coming up from the chitta, from the deep mind. And so something might come up and it's up to us then to decide, no chitta, I don't want to identify with that or chitta, identify with that, or as ego, identify with that. So when it rises up, it could be a case of the ego saying, oh, here's my opportunity to approve my existence, to prove I am. So I'm going to focus in on this, but we don't want to do that. So we use the fourth faculty of mind. We use the fourth faculty of mind, which is the buddhi, the the innate intelligence, our capacity to discern and to discriminate with intelligence. So ordinarily in our lives, we don't use this enough. Um, We've gotten into the habit of allowing the data and the deep mind to just continually to process information. And then we allow ego to continually identify with that. There are some moments when we'll use our intellectual capacities to, um, to discern the truth of what's going on, but ordinarily we don't. But in our meditation practice, that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to use our intelligence to say, hey, wait a minute. Well, okay, what's going on here? So the intelligence says, please sit still, please close your eyes, please do all this to get away sense data. Perfect. That's what the intelligence says. Your ego says, no, but I don't want to sit here. I don't, I don't like this chair. Your, your innate intelligence, if we listen to it more, we'll say, it's okay. It's only for a half an hour. It's not a big issue. And your ego will say, no, but I mean, whatever. So you, we need to just give our power or give our attention to what the buddhi is saying, the innate intelligence, and not what the ego is saying. And then as we're practicing our meditation, the from the depths of our mind, when we're, when we're sitting there and we, this thought is thrown up. And at that point, <laughs> it, the ego will say, I want it. And the buddhi will say, you can't have it. Um, and so we're endeavoring to empower the buddhi to, be, to take control, to manage the situation, to manage these office workers, so to speak, so that they're doing their duty when they need to do their duty, but not taking over and not taking control of the mind-body system. So this is what we're doing. So we use our meditation techniques and we'll use different techniques for cultivating concentration. What's going on? Like even if we look at mantra, when we use mantra, we are synchronizing our mantra with the breathing process. The breathing process helps us to, by being aware of the breathing process, we're helping to be more aware of what's happening internally. And it'll gradually become more and more subtle, as we talked about previously in relation to prana, it becomes more and more subtle. And we're synchronizing and paralleling the use of mantra on top of that. So we're using whatever word or word phrase, which is pleasing on top of the breathing process. We're doing that. And that's, that's our object for focusing on. Now, the sense that, that we've moved away, the chitta will have stuff to say. 
the ego might not like the fact that you're only giving me these two stupid things to focus on. You're giving me the breath. I don't. I never have to pay attention to the breath. I've been breathing since you were born, and now you're making it a big deal. Come on. Or the mantra. Yeah, this mantra is great and everything, but God, we have so much more vocabulary. Can we say something else? So there's this kind of just not finding enough um, to, to give the ego a sense of, I am, and I am important, and I exist, and I need to def- things to define. So it's, it's going to become restless. So the buddhi, the sense of innate intelligence and our capacity to discern, that's the tool, that's the faculty of mind we're trying to cultivate. So when we're meditating and we're using our mantra and our, the thought comes up, it's at that point that we may become distracted, but it's the buddhi that's going to help us to stay concentrated. It's the buddhi that's going to help us to stay on point and to move into more subtle states of awareness. So really, through our practice of meditation, what we're trying to do is to cultivate the capacity to, um, to remain, uh, no, we're cultivating the capacity for our buddhi to be the deciding force within the mind. So this is the process. Um, and really, the whole process is a process of cultivating the capacity to discriminate. Now, I always remember Roy um, talking about um, yoga as being a path for helping us to develop our capacity to discriminate. And I have listened to Roy many times, and I had the privilege of being in CSA and listening to Roy face-to-face many times. But it took me a couple of years, a good few years, really, to really appreciate this, the capacity to discriminate, the capacity of us to trust our own innate intelligence to guide us rather than trusting our desire to um, reassure our sense of individual existence. So it's really a case of letting go of, I don't need to do this to prove who I am or what I am or that I exist. Instead, I just need to trust my own capacity to discern what's important from what's not important, what's reality from what's not reality. Um, And so all of this practice helps us to master um, our intuitive knowing of what's true, of what's real. And in order to be able to do this, we get back to that whole principle of concentration, because in order to be able to know what's going on and discern through what's true from what's not true, reality from unreality, we need to be aware, <laughs> we need to be focused. And so we rely on concentration as a means for us to know what's going on. And in our formal meditation practice, we do this within the incubated space. That's fine. But when we stand up from our practice and we go about living our day, it doesn't end. That, that, that endeavor to maintain concentrated awareness continues. That endeavor to allow our own innate, intuitive capacity to discern what's true from what's not true, continues. It keeps going. And so Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras 
he defines two key aspects to experiencing yoga. He defines one as being practice. Now, when he talks about practice, he's not talking about sadhana. He's not talking about the formal practices that we do. He does mention them later, but that's not what he's talking about in this. He's talking about the continuous practice of abiding as the self, abiding as the seer, abiding in a state of clarified, pure consciousness. That's the practice. We're, that's what we're continuously doing. In our formal meditation practice, we're doing it um, in, a me, in a manner which is a training ground. But in our lives, we're doing it in a manner where now we've opened up the, the manas, the sense mind. So it's no longer we're just dealing with the chitta. Now we're dealing with the sense mind as well. So there's a lot going on, but we're endeavoring to cultivate the capacity to rely on the buddhi, the innate intelligence. And we're doing this even when we're engaging with our daily affairs. So this is the practice. And we'll, we'll, you know, we'll miss the mark sometimes. Sometimes we won't get it right, but we return and we, we return to trying to do it with greater effectiveness and with greater uh, capacity. And it's a continuous practice and we keep on doing it. So that's one side. But the other side that we is Patanjali outlines as being fundamental to our experiencing yoga is um, non-attachment. Non-attachment. So we have two sides. Practice, the continuous practice of always staying anchored, poised in our essential nature, which is clarified, pure, conscious being. And the other one is uh, letting go, just being non-attached to anything which is going to prevent us from doing that. Letting go of anything which is going to become an impediment to our experiencing that, whether it's a, something in a gross world, uh, you know, in terms of like the everyday going on or something which is going on at an emotional level or something that's going on on a mental level. We need to be prepared to let go at every level in order to facilitate the practice of staying attuned to our essential na nature. So these two are two essential aspects to experiencing yoga, as explained by Patanjali in the first book of the Yoga Sutra. Um, but in order to be able to do either of these, we need to have concentration. We need to be concentrated. Um, and so our meditation practice, it's a training ground. It provides us with the capacity to connect with our pure conscious being, to familiarize ourselves with that um, experience, familiarize ourselves with our essential nature so that where when we stand up and we go around the world, we're able to remember uh, that state, remember our essential nature with greater ease. We're able to shift our um, perspective or shift our uh, awareness so that we're back in that space of clarity, of purity, of knowing. Um, and so our formal meditation practice gives us that um, ability. But our formal meditation practice also helps us to develop concentration. So when we are in our practice, it's all about developing the capacity to concentrate so that we can experience meditation, so that we can experience absorption. But in our lives, by living on purpose, by living with intention, by living with the, uh, with the objective of fulfilling our intentions, um, then we're able to uh, remain concentrated. 
And by being concentrated, then it's easier for us to stay attuned to our essential nature and also to let go of everything which is preventing us from staying attuned to our essential nature. Now, meditation nowadays is very much um, like I remember even just 10 years ago, wasn't it? Now, would it be more? It would have been about 12 to 13 years ago when I started offering meditation workshops and teaching people. Even then, within Ireland, I'm not sure about in the United States, it wasn't, or other countries, it wasn't um, as talked about. Um, and the word mindfulness nowadays has become a keyword, like a, a real commonplace term within within institutions and organizations and places that you wouldn't have in the past expected to hear it. And this is these are things which Paramahansa Yogananda and Roy Eugene Davis uh, talked about in terms of the fact that we are, as a species, we are waking up. Um, and so while meditation as a practice is becoming more and more um, popular, and while Kriya Yoga as a tradition uh, is developing more and more a presence, even though it has had presence for quite some time, but it's developing more and more, um, we really need to reflect on why we're doing it and what it's all about for us. So at the beginning, I asked you to define what yoga was for you, and that's fine. We went through and we talked about uh, the philosophy and we broke it down in relation to the practice. And then we broke it down in relation to the psychology, how it works with our minds. Um, and all of this, uh, this kind of explanation can be helpful. Um, what I've found from my own experience of practicing yoga and being part of this Kriya Yoga tradition and adhering to formal disciplined practices uh, while also endeavoring to do my best in terms of my day-to-day -day life, what became apparent is that while yoga is the practice, while we're endeavoring to do this uh, and we have to learn things so as to be able to apply them and say, to get the results from them. Yoga is also the result. Yoga is the final experience, that state of consciousness where we are no longer, you're no longer um, in need of uh, identifying with any aspect of manifested reality. We no longer need to do that at all. Because we are very much grounded in the uh, experience that we exist. We exist, I exist, like the one, the one exists. And there's nothing which is needed to um, prove that. There's no need for identification or, in, or association with anything. It just is happening. Um, and so... This understanding of yoga as being the final result uh, has helped me a lot in my own personal practice because we are, you know, I've gone through a lot of uh, the philosophy and the concepts, but the concepts themselves are just the means for us to be able to understand it. And while uh, I 
fully uh, appreciate the value of yoga as a system. And I'm very grateful for everything which is the, being served to me and being offered to me and which has benefited me so much uh, as part of the Kriya yoga system. It seems to me that ultimately what we're endeavoring to do is to just be, just be. And that is, uh, that is what the end result is. And so we will all be at different stages. You know, you're taking part in this retreat and we are together and we're talking about these things. And you'll, you'll, some of you will take what I'm saying in one way and others will take another. And this is the beauty of it. This is the beauty of the way that this reality is expressing. I give this same talk in another week and you all turn back, come back again and you come to listen to me if you come to listen to me. And uh, you, um, you may get something totally different. And why is that? Be the process of being able to accept reality and being able to understand reality and our relationship to it so that we're able to accept it at even deeper levels, this whole process is, is, is what allows us to um, wake up. And it's, it's beautiful in terms of the fact that uh, it, it's just another way uh, that life shows its fantastic colors. It's another way where pure consciousness and absolute reality reveals its total beauty uh, and um, majesticness. You know, we, at the beginning, when we looked at this is reality, this is what's going on. Um, ultimately, it's being able to just surrender to that, that will give us the greatest peace. And so we, we use these practices as a means to help to just take, to remove the impediments. Right, so our consciousness isn't fragmented anymore by any sense of um, what we think should happen, what we think things should be like, how we think things should go, what, what we think yoga should be doing, what we think the Kriya Pranayama technique should be doing, all of this, like our projection, our expectations, our wants, it's, it's, a case of just getting to uh, understand what is true. And so while there's times in our path, we will misunderstand things. I know I've misunderstood things and I know I've misconstrued certain teachings. The whole process is one of uh, an unfolding and it's an evolutionary process. And it's a very beautiful process. Um, and although we may not get a liberation just like that right now just because we've listened to this talk there's something very beautiful in the fact that we're participating in the process and this for me this is the accepting the reality this is the this is the acknowledging the beauty of the reality right now as it is this episode of the kriya yoga podcast was made possible by donations from kriya yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.